Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Old camel knees. Old camel knees. That is one of the amazing nicknames in church history. It's given to James, the brother of Jesus, the author of this book that we have before us today. One of the earliest church historians was recording the ministry of James, uh, the brother of Jesus. He said, he was frequently found upon his knees, begging forgiveness for the people, so that his knees became hard like those of a camel. In consequence of his constantly bending them in his worship of God and asking forgiveness for the people. Um, I love that nickname. Old camel knees, these hard knees, hardened from kneeling in prayer, hardened from kneeling to intercede for God's people and to ask forgiveness for them. Uh, I think it's worth noting that words like we have today, they're pretty hard as well. And we would do well to heed the hard word of James, but mindful that this word may be hard and his knees may be hard, but they come from a tender heart. He's speaking the truth in love, taking up the mantle of a prophet of the Old Testament. This is a pastor. He's seeking God's best for God's people, trying to lead them and exhort them to lives of consistency and holiness and maturity. For me, the theme verse of the entire book of James comes in chapter one. I actually love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. It says, in simple humility, let your gardener God landscape you with the word, making a salvation garden of your life. I like that because today we see the sharp, hard side of old camel knees, James. He's taking out a weed whacker and he's trying to get rid of these weeds of sin that are growing in the salvation garden of our lives. This isn't James waxing about theology. He's not detached and separate from everyday life. This is James the pastor with his finger on the pulse of our lives, getting in our business a little bit, warning us about the seriousness of sin, calling us to repentance, calling us to holiness. So let's give ear to old camel knees together this morning. First, there's a call to lives of submission. James chapter four, verses seven through 10, we find that James is telling us pretty simply to stop playing games, to stop flirting with the ways of the world and instead live single-minded lives of submission to God. He quotes Proverbs three right before this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, James sees this problem. He, he sees a church uh, where there's a consistency issue and it's rooted in pride. He prescribes humility for this congregation. Um, and he actually holds up uh, kind of the, the counterexample. Submit yourselves to God. That's the main thrust of this entire passage. Uh, we're going to talk about this, but there, there's actually 10 commands total. It's like James's 10 commandments, if you will. And the first one is submit yourselves to God. Then he brings up the evil one, the devil. Resist the devil. And that makes sense because if we're called to humility, 
And we're called to, to not be prideful or self-reliant. Well, who is the ultimate example of pride? Self-reliance, not submitting to God. Well, it's, it's the enemy, the evil one, according to James. Um, there is so much packed in this, this section, uh, verses 7 through 10, these 10 commands. Um, I was reading uh, in study for this morning and came across a creative idea from Bishop N.T. Wright. Uh, as you know, he's kind of my pastor from afar, Bishop N.T. Wright. And he actually looks at these verses. He says, what we have here is probably an agenda for about six months of spiritual direction. You could spend six months working through these verses in your life. Or he says, maybe it's, it's you know, what we need to do for an extended silent retreat. <laughs> Hear these verses. Let them seep deep in. See which ones uh, God brings to mind. And so again, we're going to work through some of this. Uh, but I would just say this passage may be more than a lot that we cover. Um, we're, we're not going to do all the work on Sunday. Um, there's a lot of work to be done through the week and rereading this and praying through it, meeting in community groups like so many are doing and saying, hey, where does this maybe hard word that's, a, that's, that's spoken out of love, where does it hit our lives? Um, what, what does the Holy Spirit bring to mind? When you read through it, um, I would just counsel you, don't try to do all 10. Uh, you'll get exhausted. Uh, read through and see what, what God might highlight. Hey, this is what he would work on in my life next. That's how the Holy Spirit works when we read the scripture. Which one of these feels like a pressure point where our gardener God wants to landscape the salvation garden of your life with his word? What weed is he looking to expose and uproot and pull up so that you can bear fruit for his glory, fruit for his kingdom? I mean, here are the 10 commands. Listen to these. Uh, we have an echo from a bird. That's amazing. <laughs> I love it. Um, he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. We've all gotten good at that, right? Hand sanitizer, that works. <laughs> Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then the last five come quick. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Again, the main command here is to submit to God. Um, these other nine, they hang off it. They're related to it and they show us how we might be called to submit ourselves to God. In fact, submitting to the Lord may be a really helpful one sentence definition of the Christian faith. What does it mean to follow God? We submit to him. We come under his rule, under his reign. We humbly place ourselves uh, under God, our king. C.S. Lewis once wrote that fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. We don't just need a little fudging and work on the side. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. I think many of us do that when we come to Jesus, and it's actually a daily call and challenge that we would lay down our lives, lay down our arms, lay down our plans, and say, God, what would you have us do? What would you have us not do? We're going to follow you. And again, that's in contrast uh, to the evil one who wanted to do things his way and lost everything uh, through pride. And so we're called to resist the devil. 
Bishop N.T. Wright again, I love this. He says, the devil is a coward. His trick, listen to this wisdom, is to whisper that we know we can't resist. That he's got us before and he'll get us again. So why not just give in straight away and save all that bother? He says, that's the great lie. Because you've sinned before, it means you're going to live a life of sin and unrighteousness. He says, that's the lie. And that's what we're tempted to believe. He says, resist that and he will run. And the flip side is beautiful, that when we submit ourselves and resist the devil, God draws near. That his person and presence, especially through the work of the Holy Spirit, comes into our lives and empowers us um, for holiness and to do the work that God has called us to do. Part of that's going to involve repentance. When we see the holiness and glory of God, we repent. Um, and he, he's, he's pretty straight up here. Uh, he doesn't mince words. Actually, none of our readings today minced any words, did they? He says, you sinners, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, turn from your sin, turn to the Lord. He says, you're, you're probably going to have godly sorrow, lament, mourn, and weep. One writer says the turning from one state, the state of worldliness, to another, the rule and reign of God, is a sign of true repentance. And, and mourning is appropriate, um, not out of like self-pity or self-flagellation, but mourning is appropriate when we realize the enormity of our sin. That it's not arbitrarily breaking laws, that it's sin against God and our neighbor. It's first and foremost a relational breach. And we say this a lot here at St. Thomas, quoting Tim Keller, you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. We believe that. But more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. That's the two sides of the coin. That, that's the tension. And that's the tension in this passage, to be honest with our sin as we hope in the Lord from a place of humility. That's the calling here. We're to humble ourselves, practice self-examination. Say, Lord, show us the areas that need work. At the beginning of each of our services, we, play, we pray the colic for purity. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. In other words, the Lord knows. <laughs> he knows us better than we know ourselves. I actually think sometimes in his grace, he, he lets us come to that knowledge slowly <laughs> because we couldn't deal with it all at once. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And through self-examination, we just ask, Lord, show me what's awry. Show me what's amiss. Show me what to move towards next to see health and wholeness and healing we simply agree with God about what he already knows and what he already sees. Uh, by the way, our assigned passage for today only extends into verse 12. Uh, but there's this great optional parenthesis that we could read uh, chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. So I want to do that, not going as deeply into each of these verses, but just to get the whole scope of what James is doing here. Um, because he's calling us to honest, humble, prayerful self-examination. He's highlighting different sins that are common in our lives. Um, I will say here in chapter 4, he, he is asking for self-examination. Um, you might have seen that passage about judging others. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Um, he's calling for self-examination, not neighbor examination. Um, as we go through this passage, as he's, uh, that's his pastoral intent, his thrust. So let's talk about this self-examination. 
Um, As I read through the rest of our section, chapter 4, verse 11, through chapter 5, verse 6, there are are at least four categories of sin that are there. Um, If you like the idea of a salvation garden with weeds, maybe four kinds of weeds that are commonly growing up that need to get dealt with kind of in their own way. Uh, First, slander. Second, presumption. Third, omission. And fourth, consumption. Now, slander is pretty clear. Uh, That's how we use our words, right? Uh, Joe, who was our guest preacher last week, he did a great job looking at an earlier part of James where we're uh, taught how to guard our tongue. Reminded us that if you're sick and you go into the doctor, they're going to, the first thing they'll do is a diagnostic test is say, stick out your tongue. And the same thing is true in the spiritual life. Stick out your tongue. Let's see if you're healthy. Um, And again, I thought Joe did a fantastic job last week. Really enjoyed his preaching. I felt like he was clear, felt like I understood it. Um, And then came applying it. I don't know about you. Sunday was great. Guarding the tongue is not a Sunday one and done exercise, is it? I mean, probably a few times later on Sunday, maybe once on Monday, I opened my mouth to say something I shouldn't, and I was like, ooh, Joe said in the sermon. But by Wednesday, Thursday, maybe, (laughs) that recedes from our mind. We're not as cognizant of what is said. It's a lifelong process, cooperating with and under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, that we would speak well, and that our speech would be holy. Um, Next, there is a sin of presumption. And James sounds kind of like the sage from Ecclesiastes. Your life is a vapor, he says. Why why are you making plans? Tomorrow we'll do this, tomorrow you'll do that. You don't know what the future holds. In other words, uh, by the way, I'm going to talk about, I don't think he's against planning. He's against thinking you're God. That's what's happening here. That's the sin of presumption, living our lives as if we are in control of our future, as if we are God, and he, or maybe living as if he's not a factor. And James just said, hey, remember that you're limited, that your perspective is limited, your life is a mist. I actually think one of the silver linings of this bizarre pandemic season would be some growth in this area for many of us. Um, Because we become aware that that we cannot control and compel and coerce life to just fit into our boxes. I think for many of us, maybe an illusion of comfort or control that we had has been exposed and it's been shattered during this pandemic season. And that's a grace, I think. Um, I will say that I, I was doing some research on this and I don't, I won't go far down this path, but just, I want to mention this, that um, the prevalence of, of so-called conspiracy theories. I'm sure you have friends or relatives or coworkers or neighbors, and you go, man, we are following a different script for this thing. And how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, the research I was doing about kind of belief in these, these ideas and these systems that might seem different said it's actually a really understandable coping mechanism. That in the face of the illusion of our control being exposed, we'll we'll almost do anything to regain that. And we'll even give ourselves to these false narratives if at least we can have a narrative. 
that tries to make some sense of the chaos and the mystery of what's happening. And so that's been tenderizing my heart. Remembering these are not ill intent. These are folks trying to cope and get through a weird season like everyone is. And that this is actually kind of a coping mechanism. Those who just say, I can't deal with this reality that I can't control or compel or coerce life to bend to my will. And so we give ourselves to to mistruth and untruth. Instead, what James is calling us to is to hold things loosely. Uh, We're supposed to plan. Actually, one scholar looking at this says, planning for the future is wise, not evil, but planning without acknowledging or consulting God or without reference to his ethical precepts or even worse, boasting of one's independent planning is both foolish and wicked. We're called instead to be discerning to see what's happening, to hold things loosely, to plan well, but not to be stubborn with it. Um, I think we've all probably grown in that a little bit in this season too, right? Flexibility, pivot. If I never hear pivot again, I I might actually never watch a basketball game (laughs) so that I don't have to hear the word pivot. Am I right? But we've had to be flexible. We've had to respond. We've had to see what the Lord is doing. And this is actually, I think this is a new thing for us to learn, but, but the church has known this for generations and generations. Um, God's people have lived where they don't have this illusion of comfort and control, and it draws them to him. And historically, the church has said that when we do make plans or we, we see what's going to happen next, we do it uh, DV, DV. That's an abbreviation. It's a Latin abbreviate, abbreviation for Deo Valente, God willing. Um, and by the way, that's not something you just sprinkle in like jargon and not really mean it. Like, you know, this is going to happen, Lord willing, and we just, okay, we said it, so we're not presuming. <laughs> no, it's that we live lives and we make plans and we, we discern God's call and vocation, but we do all of that DV, Lord willing. We're trusting in him, not presuming what God would do or always what God would have us do. Two more sins are mentioned here. I'll mention the last one. Uh, the sin of consumption. Um, James 5, 1 through 6 is a good old-fashioned godly rant. And the flavor of the prophets, it's a warning to the rich. And it reminds us so much of the teaching of Jesus, who, who warns us that we can place our trust and we can place our hearts in wealth that is not eternal, that, that can be vulnerable to attack and stealing and coercion instead of investing in things that are eternal. Um, That can lead to self-indulgence and self-reliance. It can mean that we are intentionally and unintentionally part of getting rich at the expense of others. There's these systems of injustice that we can be part of. And it's not that God is against rich people or, or material goods. Those aren't bad, but they're not ultimate. And here, James is saying that there are things being done that that violate these other people that are image bearers of God. And and that's what's important. And we're called to be stewards of the resources. We're called to be content. We're called to submit to God in humility together. Um, And by the way, I won't say much about this, but the, the best way to grow in discipleship in this area, because I think all of us struggle with this to an extent, um, is generosity, Um, there's something practical about when you open your hands to give, 
You acknowledge that you trust in the Lord to provide so you don't have to hoard. And when you open your hands to give, all of those vice grips that your stuff puts on your heart, it loosens that grip, gift by gift by gift. And so um, we actually encourage generosity here at St. Thomas, not just as a fundraising tactic, but as a discipleship practice. Um, and, and you need to do that. You need to be giving so that you're freed from the grip that material things will have on your life that encroaches so easily. Um, and then one more thing. If we go back to James 4.17, we read about sins of omission, this interesting category. Verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Um, and this stuck out to me. I, I don't know about your uh, family of origin or how you grew up in the church, but for me, I grew up and sins were things you didn't do. Avoid that. Avoid that. No one talked to me much about, here's what God wants you to do, and if you don't do those things, that's sinful as well. And that's what we actually hear every week in the great commandment. You're called to love God with all of you. You're called to love your neighbor as yourself, and, and there are ways that we fail to do that, and those are sins of omission versus sins of commission. Um, and I say that, I probably should have a fair caveat here. Um, this is not to make you paranoid. I know that some of us have very, um, we, we can get anxious about these things, or, or we can have maybe an overly sensitive conscience, and we go, oh my gosh, if, they're, if, they're, if, if, if sin is not doing things, like there are 60 seconds of every minute that is the opportunity for me to commit a sin of omission. Um, that's not what James is trying to do. And so I'll just say, if that's a struggle of yours, uh, please don't let this take in an unhealthy direction for you. This is more generally, what's God calling you to? And are you being faithful to that calling? Are you being humble and obedient and responsive and proactive to what's happening, to love God and to love your neighbor? All right, uh, we're getting close to the end. I wanna mention just a few more things uh, before we finish um, about these categories of sin. And maybe just something that's been on my heart, been on my mind this week studying this passage because um, it is all about sin, which, you know, everyone loves. Hey, what was the Sunday sermon about? Sin. All about sin. Um, but I just want to propose that when we read the scriptures, um, there are different ways to categorize sin. We've talked about a few of them. Um, but one of the ways to categorize sin is as personal individual sins and then as corporate community sins. Um, I just think that's key. When I read here James 5, 1 through 6, a lot of this is about community systems of sin and oppression. It's this bigger sense of things we do wrong together, uh, sometimes willingly, sometimes unwillingly. Other parts of James are all about our internal heart and lives. There's this personal dimension. And here's what I thought about, um, that, that some Christians, that they do a great job focusing on individual personal sins. What's the code of holiness God has given for me? And can I follow that? But broader sins, like if we think about like economic oppression or racism or inequality, some of this kind of stuff, they're like, man, that's out there. I, I can't deal with that, so I'm going to deal with me because that's, that's on my purview. Um, and then other Christians I know, because I think the devil's fine if we fall off one side or the other, um, they're really uh, understanding and, and they, get, they go, hey, there are these big categories of sin that we need to pay attention to. 
Well, what about that broken thing in your life? No, no, no. Let's talk about this big category of sin out there. Rather, what we see in the scriptures is a holistic, balanced approach to this. Um, and we actually see it in our confession of sin a little bit. Uh, we're going to do the confession of sin in a bit, which is great because it'll apply what we've been talking about. But we start with, we confess that we have sinned against you. We. It's both personal, it's first person, and it's plural. We. We confess that we have sinned against you. Um, you see this in, in church history and in the scriptures. The prophet Isaiah, he got a view of God's holiness and his glory. He says, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, I've read about the sins that the prophet Isaiah identifies. I don't think many of them were on his to-do list. I don't think he was personally involved in much of the idolatry and things at all. But he knew what he was part of. And, and he was lamenting, not what he had done or not done, but just lamenting the general state of sin and brokenness as a response to God's glory, his holiness. Uh, think about James here, old camel knees. His knees are hardened from interceding for sinners that he knew. Um, I don't know that he was taking part in all these things, but he laments it just the same. He identifies and repents of it uh, just the same. His knees are hardened in consequence of his constantly bending them in his worship of God and asking forgiveness for the people. And actually, this challenged me as I was thinking about it. Uh, sometimes I like to think about those big sins out there that other folks might, you know, that might be part of their life. I was like, man, think about the example of James. Like, he definitely spoke prophetically. He spoke truth and love. He, he identified things that were wrong. But what was the foundation of that? Intercessory prayer and love. His knees were harder than his words. And it just challenged me to think, hey, when, when I see injustice and oppression and when th people see things differently than me, are my sharp words rooted in hard knees because I've been praying for them and interceding and asking the Lord to soften my heart. Again, it's this holistic view of sin. They're looking at it from different angles, highlighting these sins of commission, omission, things done, left undone. We get that in the general confession. And I would just say, if you use the confession of sin that's in the Book of Common Prayer, um, which is really good. I think it's a nice balance of these things. Um, it can get a little bit rote. We can go through it kind of sing-songy kind of quickly. And sometimes what I do just devotionally, I'd commend it to you, is just to slow down. Do things phrase by phrase with a journal. Confess things that we have done. What have I done? Holy Spirit, show me where this is true in my life. We lament things left undone. Holy Spirit, what have I failed to do that you have called me to do? You can walk through it slowly. Um, historically, the church has actually recommended Fridays for this. That on Fridays, we spend a little extra time in repentance and confession. You know why? Because on Friday, we also remember the cross. And so we're not left wallowing. We're not left in self-pity or self-loathing. We're left realizing our need for Jesus and then celebrating 
the work he did for us and for our salvation. That's, that's the logic of the New Testament, of an Anglican service, of a healthy spirituality as we follow the Lord. Again, the goal isn't wallowing in self-pity or self-loathing. In a minute, when we do the confession of sin, it's not to leave us there. No, it's to hear the absolution pronounced. It's to come to the Lord's table. It's to renew fellowship and empower us to do the work that God has given us to do. That's what we hear about in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, like all these, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I would just challenge you today, um, take these with you, these words with you during the rest of the service, during the rest of the week. Spend some time with a journal praying through this. Spend some time um, with your community group or with friends and family processing this. Have the courage to prayerfully, slowly work through this passage a few times. Saying, God, our gardener, use your word. Use this word to landscape the salvation garden of my life so that I might bear fruit for your goodness and for your glory. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.